Hello, and welcome to the Legal Marketing 2.0 podcast. I'm your host, Guy Alvarez, and this is the show where we examine the latest trends in digital marketing and explain how they can help you get more leads and acquire more clients for your firm. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Elanid Sems. Elanid is the founder and president at Right Hat, and she is also the founding member of the Legal Marketing Association's Mid-Atlantic Chapter. She also has been inducted into the Legal Marketing Association's Hall of Fame and is a member of the College of Law Practice Management. Today with Elanid, we're going to talk about brand research and why brand research is important. Um, Right Hat is a branding agency that focuses on helping companies that have offerings that aren't always so easy to understand. And so today we're going to talk about brand research. Uh, But before we get started, I want to ask you a question. Do you struggle with digital marketing and how to make it work for you and your law firm? If so, I want you to go to lawfirmmarketinghelp.com and sign up for a free digital audit. This audit will provide you with all the information you need to get your digital marketing to produce the results you want. Hello, Alan Eden. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Legal Marketing 2.0 show. How are you today? I'm great, Guy, and thanks for asking us to join. Good to have you here. Uh, so, Elanid, I know you've been in legal marketing for a long time. Uh, you probably know more about legal marketing than most people out there. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in legal marketing and a little bit about what Right Hat does. Obviously, you guys are a very well-known branding agency, but tell me a little bit, how did you get started and you know, how did you get uh, going with Right Hat? Well, I'm, I am carbon datable. As you said, I have been around legal marketing quite a while. Um, I got started because I, I really, at the beginning of my career, was at Arthur Anderson, as you may recall, one of the big eight accounting firms, and sure. was really at the very beginning of them having a marketing program. So really kind of at the, the, you know, the genesis of professional services marketing in the early 80s. And so when I decided to shift from accounting into being basically in the consulting world, I really looked at professional services overall. And part of that was that the law firms had lagged the accounting firms at that point. So they were really anxious to talk to people that had already spent 10 years really trying to figure out how to do professional services marketing. Because up until that time, really, there weren't that many people doing it. And so we didn't have a lot to refer back to. Right, right. And it seems like even today, you know, law firms are always looking for, I guess now it's not the big eight, but the big four, <laughs> but they're always right. looking at what the, the professional services firms are, are doing. Um, so tell me a little bit about Right Hat. You know, how did you get started with Right Hat? Well, it's kind of, it's sort of a funny story because if you'd asked me growing up, was I going to go out and be an entrepreneur and start a company, I would have probably laughed at you guys and said, no way. Uh, but really the way I started Right Hat with my partner, Charlene Fabi, is that I really realized there was this need in the market to have a service provider that was going to dig in and really understand what a law firm was selling. And it wasn't you know, just selling a particular service. It was selling an experience of getting your legal services and understanding everything behind it from what was technical to you know 
what was going on in an industry, all of these details that, that make uh, selling a law firm, frankly, a challenge for others. So what I wanted to do with Mary, really good industry insight, very rigorous market research with exceptional design. And so having been in two agencies prior to this, one that was very design driven and, you know, one that was very kind of just driven on one particular kind of brand expression, digital, I was looking for a more fulsome experience where we were agnostic to what the tool was. We were just going to find the right tool, but we were going to base our decisions and our thinking on real market research. And that's how we came together. That is so interesting. And so what do you find is the biggest challenge in getting a firm to do brand research? Well, the first thing is that their knee-jerk reaction about brand research is we don't need it. We know our clients. We're close to our clients. We, we've got it. We've got it covered. Let's skip that and go straight to design. So that's kind of a, an initial reaction we often get. Uh, it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still, you know, fairly, fairly bad. And of course, there's certainly some truth to the fact that people know their clients. I mean, I would never say they don't know their clients, but it seldom tells the whole story. So why is that? Most professional service firms only engage with their clients over a specific project or matter. And part of that is that the billable hour is king. So they're seldom sitting down with their clients, and really only until recent years did, did people do this at all, and just talking about what were the pressures on them, what were they worried about, where were their companies going. And so what happens is that lawyers, um, and really all professional service providers, because they don't often sit, take the time to sit down and do that, they get a skewed view of what's important to the client because they're getting the view of really more what's important on that matter. So market research can help identify the bigger concerns that prospects have and sometimes some of the softer concerns that, uh, you know, used to have people do eye rolling, but mm-hmm. things like responsiveness, you know, that uh, that really do matter. Right. And, and do you find firms and more specifically lawyers are sometimes opposed to doing this brand research or... Uh, you know, to think that they don't really necessarily want to find out what their clients think? Yeah, I think there's two, I think we have two problems, um, or two points of resistance, rather, with, with research. The first being that they really do, you know, think, as I said, that they, you know, know everything. Um, yeah. And what we have to always remind them is that they're, they're correct that probably 80 to 90% of what you learn in market research you've already known. But the devil's in the detail. It's that last 10 to 20% that can make a brand really resonate with the buyer. And so that's what we're getting after. And then the second thing is what you just said, is they, particularly of its client feedback research, they often don't want to hear some of the things they've not done as well. Right. Um, but there's, there's another reason that's really kind of a third reason I just kind of thought of, and that is sometimes the research we find means that they're going to have to make fundamental changes to their business and they don't want to hear that. And so that can be another, that can be another barrier. So most of our audience is made up of, of lawyers and, and legal marketers. Um, if you were going to give advice to a legal marketer that is trying to get the law firm that he or she works for, to do brand research, you know, to try to convince the lawyers. What would you say to, to him or her? 
Well, I think there are a couple of things I would do. The first thing that I would do is to tell them to really mine their own data and see what they can find from their own data. So like where where do they really find some information in their own data that would be benefited by then an external overlay? Because your own data is great, but you also then need to marry that with external information. And then that's one way, you know, that you can explain that. But the second thing is to really, you know, go to your partners and say, these are our competitors. So a careful competitor analysis that seems to be, seem to be eating our lunch. And what is it? Why are they seeming to be able to progress faster than us? And having kind of a narrow focus on maybe a particular practice area or a particular industry and do research around that mm-hmm. because then people can get their hands on that um, much more carefully uh, than they can just the kind of overall brand research. So start by narrowing and doing research on one particular um, issue or sector, and that's often easier for them to bite off. Yeah, start small, right? That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you give us a couple of examples of where brand research has really made a difference with your clients? Yeah, certainly. Um, so here's a here's one example. Uh, we had a lawyer that uh, it was a law firm, not just an individual lawyer, but this particular lawyer himself was very convinced that he had the greatest insight into when a company hires a new M&A lawyer, what they, what they were looking for, you know, what was most important to them. And we were a little bit concerned that his list, although it was good, that what he was prioritizing on the list was probably not the highest concerns to the buyer. Um, and it was really around uh, predictable fees. He thought everything we went to market should be around predictable fees. And it just um, it didn't sit right with us that that was the only number one concern. Mm-hmm. So we convinced him to let us do a series of interviews, one-on-one interviews. These were quick and dirty, guys. It wasn't like hiring a big recruiting firm to recruit candidates to interview. Mm-hmm. We just picked up the phone and we, we called and talked to a number of general counsel. Sure. And we surfaced something very interesting, that their real first concern is creating fair deals because the companies in this particular sector really rely on doing a string of acquisitions. And so they don't want to be per- perceived in the industry as impossible to negotiate with, or they're not going to get their next acquisition. Right. So they don't want to give away the store, but they don't want to be seen as leaving behind scorched earth. So they need their lawyers to match their approach. That particular issue was never raised hmm. in the initial interview with a lawyer. So that came out of market research. And um, another very classic example um, is when a company, you know, our law firm tries to go to market with an incomplete offering. This is a real-life story. We had a law firm that wanted to go after a niche industry, and they had plans to offer kind of four services in that industry, like four key components to their service. Mm-hmm. And we pointed out that one of the pain points that we had, frankly, uncovered from simply looking at kind of the topics in their trade association conferences and then their trade association magazines was around shifting FDA regulations. But this seemed to be like the focus of blog postings, LinkedIn, you know, all these different topics about FDA regulations. So we raised this with the client and they balked and they said, we're not a regulatory firm. We don't want to do regulatory work. Um, and I'm like, we understand that, but we've got to at least address the elephant in the room. 
And so um, we they can, we convinced them to do actually a real study. In this case, we interviewed 25 um, companies across the country. And at, with you know, in a short amount of time, we found out that more than half of them said they would not consider a law firm that either didn't offer the regulatory component or at least have a way to address it with an wow. alliance. You know, like they weren't they weren't wow. saying you had to have it in house, but you had to have it as part of your insight. Sure. Um, and so the obstacle kind of melted away, and they they ultimately did an acquisition of like a small group of regulatory folks to add, you know, add to their offering. So that's an example where the research like helped um, overcome the resistance to change. And that's huge because without that knowledge, you know, they probably would have not gotten any of that type of business. So uh, that, well, that you is... could have knocked on a lot of doors and not yeah. gone anywhere, you know, yeah. and got, not yeah. even gotten them to open a crack in the door. So yeah. um, that, that's what we're looking for. That is so interesting. That's really, really great advice. Um, so there, there seems to be a misconception out there, or, or maybe it isn't, you tell me, that brand research is only truly affordable for companies and law firms with large budgets. Uh, is that true? No, um, not at all. Now, certain kinds of research, that is true. So if you want to do a quantitative study blind where the people don't know who you are and you want to have, you know, at least a thousand general counsel in the United States, that's going to cost you a small fortune. <laughs> but the good news is that we have lots of workarounds. So, for example, um, you, as you know, there's some amazing syndicated research out there. So, and by syndicated research, I simply mean research done by a company like an Ocritas. Right. And then they sell you slices of that research, but because they're they're doing this research on a on a larger scale, it becomes an affordable thing to purchase. So that's one example. Mm -hmm. um, but then the second example is that that we feel very inclusive when we say re brand research because it takes all forms. It may be things as as I mentioned earlier, really digging into your analytics to try to see patterns. It can be digging into financial data in a way you might never have. Uh, surveys now, you know, are so easy to administer either web-based or uh, one of the most powerful things that we've seen is as using a simple survey tool when you're sitting in a booth at a trade show. It could be as simple as five questions, um, right. Guy, but you could gain a lot of insight from that audience that is a targeted audience at that trade show. So I think that people just, they shy away from the word research because they think these big customized primary research programs, and that's just, you know, that's just one kind. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, I, I think research has, has really changed uh, over the last five to ten years. How has research changed? Uh, how have you seen research change? over the years that you've been doing? What, what are some of the things that you've seen have, have really changed or are different now than when you started doing this? Well, I think the, the number one thing that has changed research is technology, by far. Yeah. So you take the combination of technology and big data, and that has drastically changed the ability to do research and also to do it if you're not you know, a giant, you're not a behemoth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's only going to change even more with the advent of artificial intelligence because we're going to have newer tools and we're going to have a better way to 
kind of harness the insight from all these, you know, different uh, big data sets that we have. Mm-hmm. But I think the, you know, on a simple basis, I remind people that, you know, when I first started, newsletters were a really common tool. And, you know, we would print them and then we would stuff them in an envelope and we'd mail them out, right? We had no idea whether they were being dicks, you know, deep fixed by the secretary or actually, you know, opened or read. Well, now most of these items go electronically and we can study everything from open rates to whether if we send the same newsletter or alert with a different subject line, do we get better traction? Do we have more click-throughs? And we can study that once they click through to the article, what on the page do they also move on and check out or do they just drop off? So this is where I say that, that a lot of times people forget they have this data that they, they already own. It's proprietary to them and they can glean, you know, a lot there. I mentioned, you know, web-based surveys like SurveyMonkey changed that, made that affordable. And then Skype is one of the most exciting things for me because it used to be if I, if there was not a budget to go visit a prospect or a client in person, you just had to do it over the telephone, but you missed all those clues, kind of those visual yeah. clues. Yeah. And now with Skype, I can have, you know, you and I could Skype right now and I could see what you're responding to, what you're not. I could look at all of those more subtle aspects <laughs> of the engagement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Technology really has changed the way that you can communicate today with both clients and, and other partners. Um, so you mentioned artificial intelligence. I know that you are very big on it, and I know you gave a great presentation at LMA, and you gave another one here in New York. Tell me a little bit, you know, how do you think artificial intelligence is changing legal marketing? And, and you know, what kind of a future do you see with uh, the impact of artificial intelligence on the legal profession as a whole? Well, there's really, that's a two-part question because the, the change on the legal profession as a whole in the most simple way I can say it is there's a tremendous amount of jobs that are just going to go away mm-hmm. because as we already know, just in the kind of e-discovery area, it's a mo- lot more efficient to use a series of algorithms and the right, you know, discovery tool to read through pages and pages of documents that used to, you know, require a horde of lawyers doing that and, you know, locked up in a room. Um, but that's, you know, that's just the beginning of where those services are going to be changing. So I think the biggest thing is that just the way you deliver legal, legal services is going to change drastically. And that is going to mean that some, some people are not going to be needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could like talk about that for hours. Yep. In terms of how it's going to affect marketing, I think the most important thing to remember is that we've had this big advent, as I said earlier, of all this big data that's available to us. And I think anybody listening to this podcast might be groaning when they think about the fact that they go to look at their Google Analytics and what does that all mean? Like, how do you even drive any kind of actionable insight from all that data? So I think where the power comes of AI, and it's not, you know, it's not quite there yet. Uh, guy, I think if anybody tells you it is, they're, you know, they're dreaming. Um, is how do we take that data like from our website or from the engagement of social media and overlay that with our financial data and overlay that with maybe information that we've purchased through a company like Thomson Reuters or Pocketos for that matter 
mm-hmm. um, how do we take these different sources that that potential sources of data and really get something that is meaningful for us that we can you know take action uh, with so so I think that's where the promise is is that some of the mundane very time consuming things we used to spend time doing we won't be doing so we can spend more time creating and thinking of the big ideas not wondering if the big idea is right but but really uh knowing we're in the right area but but you know how are we going to to manifest it i i think that's a, an incredible insight and i i completely agree with what you're saying you know the the, the real promise uh, in the application of of uh, artificial intelligence to from a marketing perspective is to automate a lot of the routine things so that marketers have more time to actually analyze the data and glean actionable insights from it. So I think you, you totally nailed it there. All right, so we're running out of time. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share with our audience or you know, some parting tips or, or comments uh, that you would have for our, our legal marketing uh, audience? I think the only one is to just really have the lens that market research or brand research is comes in all shapes and sizes and that you can often find something, you know, affordable by really kind of thinking outside maybe your your normal parameters of market research. I think the second thing is just to always remind um, anybody that's starting a, a market research program that you are going to learn a lot of what you already know. You're going to confirm it uh, or affirm that you're in the right track, but it's that last little bit that's different than what you thought that can, you know, make a difference. And then I, I think the final thing is you try to break this down into the, the sector or into a particular buying need. So let's say cybersecurity, you know, I need services around that. Because you're always going to find that the research is just much more helpful to you than kind of general big brand research, which has a role. But mm-hmm. if you're if you're limited on budget and you limited on the attention of your your management, I would start in kind of that more narrow area, show some results, and you'll tend to get better budgets the next time around. That is great, great advice, Eleni. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Um, it's really a pleasure to have you here, and uh, I'm sure our audience appreciates it. So if people want to learn more, they can go to righthats.com and see more about what you guys are doing and some of the innovative stuff you're doing. And then we will add uh, more information on Eleni and how to get in touch with her in the show notes. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Eleni. And until next time. Thank bye-bye. you. Our pleasure. Before you go, and if you like this episode, you need to make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on any new episodes we have coming up. Also, if you are struggling with making your digital marketing work for your law firm and would like some help, make sure you go to lawfirmmarketinghelp.com and sign up for a free audit. Until next time.